Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We are uh, continuing in this new series on uh, being the church without walls and how that's really important for us to be the church because a lot of churches today have this mindset that, that the church is located within these walls and what we do needs to kind of stay within these walls. Uh, I know our culture would really like for everything the church does to stay inside the walls. They, they don't want the church outside the walls, and, but God has called us to be the church, not inside of a building, but we are the body of Christ. That's what church is, and we're to live that bo- as a body of Christ, not just when we're together worshiping and learning uh, through God's word, but when we leave this place, to, to be about our mission and the task that God has left us here for. And in order to do that, we have to realize that, that what we do can't just be uh, a set time on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night, but it's got to be something that we're doing as we're going every day and, and realize the church doesn't have walls. Uh, we leave, we are still the church, and we still have a mission uh, to accomplish. So if you have your Bibles this morning, in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start a little differently. We're going to start by reading scripture. The message today that we're going to be looking at about this is called Jesus' vision. And it's the idea that we, if we're going to be the church without walls, we need to have the same vision that Jesus has. We need to see the way Jesus sees. And so if you have your Bibles open there in Matthew 9, I would ask if you would stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word this morning in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 35, and we're going to read down through verse 38. The Word of God says in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. And now as we examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase and the words would be shared today would be yours and not mine. And that, Father, they will find the place you have for them in the hearts and the lives of your people. Father, you know where each and every one of us are today, and you know what we need to hear, and I pray that you would meet us at those points of need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, there's not a lot said here. It's it's outlined a little bit maybe better in some other places, but uh, Matthew, when he's writing his gospel here in just a few verses, he, he shares about a really tremendous ministry trip, basically, that Jesus has been on. Because when you read that, it, it, it says that he visited many cities, he taught in the synagogues, he preached the gospel, and had marvelous success. I mean, there's no way to read that without understanding that, that ministry was taking place. I mean, Scripture says here, Matthew writes it down, that says that Jesus healed every sickness and every disease that he encountered. Now, I want you to think about that for just a few moments. Imagine a day where every person that you visited in a hospital and you prayed for was immediately healed. Imagine a day where we came together for a prayer meeting and everybody we prayed for was healed. What, what, I don't know about you, but I'd be elated. I, I'd be ecstatic. That's the kind of success in ministry Jesus was having, which obviously Jesus can have that success because he's the Son of God and he can create these miracles. 
when he desires to do so. But, but we would be excited and elated. Yet, even with all this success, even with everything that was happening, Jesus doesn't pause and start to really, not the word gloat, but, but pause and be just excited about what had just taken place. He doesn't step back and, and go, wow, look what we've done. No, Scripture says after he has all this success, he looks out of the people and he has compassion on them. And then he makes this statement to his followers. He said he has compassion on them, and here's why. Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then he tells this to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. So even after all this amazing ministry success, Jesus, he basically doesn't stop to say, that's enough, we've done enough. Even after all this success, Jesus sees the people, and he still sees a need for ministry. You see, a lot of churches today, when they have a big ministry event, or they have something that takes place where they, they see God move in a, in a way, they kind of just hold on to that for a while. Instead of realizing at the end of that event or that task or whatever it is they've done, that there's still ministry that needs to be done. I, I mean, one of the ways maybe we can look at that is, you know, sometimes uh, we have a revival and we see people saved, right? Which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing to see people saved at a revival. But, you know, six months later, we're still talking about that revival. Instead of Realizing that as soon as that revival was over, there was still ministry that needed to be taking place. False Creek is an example. We get kids, they come to False Creek, they make decisions. We get excited, and students need to understand, but there's still ministry that needs to take place when we get back. There's no pause to look back and go, wow, look what we did. Ministry has to continue no matter how much success you've had. That's the point of that text. That no matter how many times you see God move, no matter how many times people are healed or people get saved, you never have time to stop and reflect and go, wow, that was awesome. No, you have to just keep going forward. Just keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. And for us to be the church without walls, we can't allow past successes to keep us from being focused on current ministry. Maybe that's a better way to say it. We can't let past successes hinder us from doing continuous ministry in the present. And that's what the church is called to do. But in order for us to really do that, I think that Jesus kind of lines out some things for us because there are successes in ministry, and yet we shouldn't let those hinder us from, from continuing in ministry. But in order for us to even get started in ministry, let alone for us to have successes and to continue, there's some different characteristics of Jesus in this passage that shows us his vision, Jesus' vision. Have you ever hoped that you could see life through someone else's eyes? Or have you ever hoped that someone could see life through your eyes? Yeah, this text and the way it's lined out is it's going to give us an opportunity to see a little bit the way Jesus sees. Okay? And it's really important for us because... I talked about this last week, but if we just look at people and we look at ministry the way we are built to look at it, we'll never accomplish ministry. We have to look at people the way Jesus looks at people. 
Okay, and so we're going to get a chance to do that. And in order for us to do that this morning, there are really four things that I want to point out to you from our text that shows us the vision of Jesus or Jesus' vision for people in ministry. Number one is I want you to see the Savior's perception. What did he perceive when he looked at the ministry and the people that were taking place? Now, if you read in verse 36, it says that when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were, and here's the point, they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So when Jesus saw the people, his perception was that they were distressed, that they were dispirited, and that they were shepherdless, like sheep without a shepherd. That, that, that word distressed, it literally means helpless. That word dispirited means hopeless. And shepherdless means they were without a leader, leading to confusion and to uncertainty. That's what Jesus saw when he saw the people. That was his perception. Have you ever seen someone that's lost? I'm not talking about spiritually lost right now. I'm talking about physically lost. The, the fear that comes from that is pretty intense. And, and, and I'm, maybe it's not someone you've seen. Maybe it's you. Have you ever been lost and not know where you were at? Now, I'm not talking about when you refuse to ask for directions. Okay? That's different. Uh, when Jen and I first got married, our honeymoon, we were on a cruise or we were going to be taking a cruise, and we had to drive out of New Orleans. I'd never been to New Orleans in my life. And so the morning we get up and supposed to go to the boat, we're driving around, and there's this nice bridge. And I thought, I want to drive across that bridge before we can go get on the boat. And it was looking at it. So I'm trying to figure out, and I get up there, and next thing I know, I'm going the wrong way, on the wrong way. And I was like, oh. And Jenna said, why don't you just stop and ask for directions? And I went, because I'm not lost. And she said, what do you mean you're not lost? You don't know where you are. I said, well, I'm not lost. I'm just directionally challenged at the moment, okay? But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone, either you or someone else, that's lost. They don't have a clue where they are. They don't know where they're going. Can you imagine the feeling of that? That's what Jesus describes. I believe he describes really clearly what it's like to be lost, to be dispirited without help or helpless to or distressed which is helpless or to be dispirited means hopeless you, you don't know where to go there's no one there to help you can you imagine that and what that would feel like i i, I wouldn't wish that on anyone to have that feeling of lostness yet when we look at people we have to see their spiritual condition and while they may not physically be lost, people in general are spiritually lost. And, that need, and we, in order to perceive that, we have to see what Jesus sees and sees them as dispirited and disheartened and, and shepherdless. We have to be willing to see their spiritual issues. But here's the problem. Many times we can't see past the physical problems to even get close to looking at the spiritual issues they're facing. You see, you and I need to realize something about lost people. Many times, the way they act has something to do with their surroundings, with their, um, the things they're going through in the moment, just different things. We don't know why people act the way they do, why they talk the way they do, why they do the things they do. It's a condition called sin. And it manifests itself differently 
for everyone, but if we can't look past the physical, we'll never see the spiritual. And when Jesus saw these people, they weren't lost. They knew right where they were. They saw where Jesus was. They came from the towns. They went to where Jesus was. They knew how to find him. They knew how to get back. They weren't physically lost, but he saw them as spiritually lost. And he saw their spiritual condition. When you and I, if we're going to be the church without walls, we have to be able to see their spiritual issues and their spiritual condition. Not their physical condition, but their spiritual condition. So that's the first thing that we need to see. So when we see people, do we see them as helpless and hopeless and shepherdless when we see the lost? Or do we see them as an inconvenience or as someone deserving of the situation they're in? We have to understand that we don't know all the ins and outs of their life. We're not told to know all the ins and outs of their life. We're just told that we need to give them the only thing that can truly help them, and that's the gospel. But we can't do that unless we perceive their spiritual condition. You know, one of the things today that's dangerous in America, in the church, when it comes to the church being the church and taking the gospel, is we kind of let people slide when we ask them about their relationship with God. What I mean by that is if you ask them, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Uh, yeah, well, the Bible says even Satan believes in God and trembles. I, I didn't ask, I, we, we need to stop asking people, do you go to church? We need to start asking people, do you have a relationship with Jesus? We were driving home the other day, and there was a song on the radio, and Galen asked me a question about this particular. She said, do you think uh, this person that passed away recently had a relationship with or went to heaven, or went to hell. And I said, if, if he didn't have a relationship with Jesus, then he went to hell. And she said, how many Hollywood people or musicians, how many of them do you think are, are lost? And I said, a, a bunch of them. Now, but every time they receive an Academy Award or whatever, it's, thank God for this, and then you read the lyrics of their music, and it's like anything but God-honoring. But see, we let people slide with that. Well, I go to church. I believe in God. No, do you have a relationship with Jesus? That's, what it's, that's where it's at. And, and you can give me all these other things. Well, I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. No, I'm not asking you if you've done that. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Well, how do I have a relationship with Jesus? You repent of your sin. You place your faith in him. That's the start. I mean, if you haven't done that, then you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and it doesn't matter what else you've done. But see, we let people slide because we, we're not perceiving their spiritual condition. We see their physical condition. As long as they're going to church, they're okay. As long as they say physically, I believe in God, they're okay. When in truth, that's not necessarily true. Because there are a lot of people that go to church that are lost. And the reason why I know that is because Scripture says that there will be many that will come to him on that day, the judgment seat of Christ, and stand before Jesus and say, there will be many that will come to him and he will have to tell them to depart because he didn't know them. And they're going to say, well, you know, we did this and we did that and we did this. And if you look at those, everything he said are religious things. And he's going to tell them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I believe with all my heart that there are people within the church that are lost. I, I believe that. I, and, and, it, and it burdens me. 
So we have to quit asking these types of questions that are easy questions and get to the heart of the matter. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? If you do, great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If you don't, you might want to consider him because the Bible says without a relationship with Jesus, you're destined for an eternity apart from God. We, but in order to be able to do that, we have to see past the physical and perceive the spiritual. That's the first thing we see in Jesus. The second thing that we see in this example, not only do we see the, the Savior's, um, what he sees, but we also can find in verse 36 his passion, the, the Savior's passion. Not only what he perceived, look at, look at verse 36 again, we'll see his passion. He says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Now, I told you last week we talked about compassion for the lost. I told you we would get back to that, and you'll probably hear it again, because I don't think we truly grasp what compassion really is. Compassion is empathy that moves to action. And, and literally in the Greek, the word that is translated compassion in the Greek that we find here is the strongest Greek word for emotion possible. And it literally means to, to, to have one's bowels or internal organs yearn. And, and here, here's, here's a way to maybe describe that, particularly for anyone my age or older, that's old enough to remember 9-11, okay? Do you remember that feeling you got when you heard that the Twin Towers had been attacked? I, I remember being on my way to East Central University and hearing about a plane flying into the first tower, and at that point, everybody just thought it was an accident. I remember getting to East Central where I was actually going to the wellness center to do my work shift for the day, going in and watching on TV as they're kind of reporting and seeing live the second plane fly into that tower. I watched that with my own eyes and that feeling you get in that moment, that yearning that, that you just you feel for those people, that's what compassion is. When you see someone and you, 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 your bowels yearn because of that. A lot of times we feel that in, in situations where we see someone hurt. You know, so we see a car wreck, you know, or kid comes in and his fingers turn sideways because it's broken. And you feel that. You, that's what compassion is. That's the word that's used. So when this says that Jesus saw the crowds, he, he had a passion for those crowds. He yearned to help those people. He yearned to help those people. That's the kind of compassion that you and I need. Can you imagine the difference of ministry that would take place when it's led by compassion, yearning, than just accomplishing a task? Let me just let, me just let you in on a little secret. Ministry from a professional standpoint kind of gets redundant. And you kind of get into this groove. You, you know you need to do this, you need to do that. It's all ministry related. But you kind of just kind of get going through the motions. I can, someone can come up to me, and I encountered this this morning, and say, so-and-so wants to talk to you about um, having a relationship with Jesus. And I have shared that so many times, it just kind of becomes just words. Not, not, I'm not saying it was just words, 
But in the middle of this conversation I had this morning, I began to remember what that's really all about. And, and there was this yearning for them to truly understand what that meant. And there was this, this feeling of this isn't just words. This isn't just a job. This is, this is eternal. You see what I'm saying? And that's the type of feeling we need when we go to be the church without walls. We have to have that kind of compassion because that kind of compassion is long living. It will stay. But just, just a task, just knocking on doors, just doing that so we can check it off our list, or pastor says we need to do it so we do it, that's not going to last. It never will. That's how come visitation programs don't normally keep up in the church because it becomes something we're doing instead of something that we're yearning to do. We lose that feeling. And so in order to be the church without the walls, we, we have to have the same kind of compassion that Jesus did. And that is that when we see these people and we see them in their condition because we perceive their spiritual condition, now we have this yearning to help them with their condition. And the good news is, church, the help is only really one thing. And that's Jesus. You see, we can give them a bunch of self-help books. And I don't like to minimize everything down because I know there's a lot of layers for a lot of people that are struggling with a lot of things. But in truth, reality, Jesus is the answer. Now, how he manifests that in their life and how things he uses in their life for them to understand that, that's, that's the way he works. We, we just need to give them Jesus and let him work. But we won't do that without compassion for the lost. The third thing that we can see from Jesus, if we're running an idea of his vision, the way he sees people. Not only do we need to see his perception and the passion that he has because of what he perceives, but there is a, another issue that Jesus sees that we need to understand, and that is there's a problem. And this problem is found in verse 37. Look at verse 37 again. He says, Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Now, I think there are people today that think, oh, the church doesn't really need to be about the harvest. I mean, God's done. I mean, there's not going to be another movement of God, and, and, and people are just cold towards God. They're cold towards the gospel. Let's just circle the wagons, and let's just encourage one another until we see, until Jesus comes back. Well, the problem with that is, is, is that really goes against God's word. Because God's word tells us that, not just here, but in other places, that that the harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of people that are like these people, dispirited, disheartened, and shepherdless. But the problem is the laborers. You see, in the economy of God and the church, the problem has never been a harvest problem. It's a worker problem. Let me put this in layman's terms. We don't have an attendance problem. We have a worker problem. If we want more people in church, then we have to have more people go out and win people to Christ and bring them to the church. If we want more salvations, then we have to have more gospel takers. If we want to see God move, we have to have more people go and do what God's called us to do. It's never been a harvest problem. It's always been a worker problem. And sometimes churches get into this, and this may be just something for you guys to remember because I haven't experienced it, and I'm thankful, but we need to keep this mindset for whoever comes next. 
You can't expect your pastor to do all that. You, you can't expect the pastor to be the one that wins everybody to Jesus. There are way too many people in this community for one person to do that. It's all of us together. We have to work together for this harvest. And so the, the, the problem is, and Jesus sees this problem, there's so many people. And he says, listen, the, the harvest is plentiful. We don't have... It's not that we don't have a harvest. Some people say, well, you live in Walika, you have a minimal harvest. I don't know about you, but a thousand people in Walika, that's a pretty good harvest. All right, let's just start with that. So it's not a harvest issue, but what we have is a worker issue. He said, so there's this problem that we have to see, and we need to understand it. And then we have to get more pointed, and we have to ask ourselves, are we a part of the solution or are we a part of the problem? Because that's a personal question. And everyone in this room has to answer that. Am I a part of the solution or am I a part of the problem? You say, well, Brother Dwayne, what's the solution? Well, the solution is found in verse 38. And we're going to get to that in a minute under our last point. But before I get there, I just want you to be mindful. When it comes to working for the Lord, and I think Chuck said this a few weeks ago, and I believe it because I know I've said it too, but that, that is... God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That means he, he's, he's not going to wait for you to, to all of a sudden be ready. He's going to make you ready when you step out. And, and some of us, we hide behind, well, I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I, I can't do this. I'm not this. I'm not that. And we limit what God can do in our life when it comes to ministry. But some, you been, let me tell you something, church. You don't never know. You never know who you're going to reach. And I, I know I've said this before, but I, I went to a funeral at Lone Grove right after I got there. We had a deacon that passed away. I never even really got to know him. I mean, when I say I got there, I may have been there a month. He passed away. And he was a former coach. And they come up and they were speaking about this guy who was a deacon in our church that I maybe met one time, maybe twice before he passed away. But one of the students said that this guy had a philosophy and it's something he heard from this guy when he was a coach and it's something he's remembered his whole life but this this guy who was a deacon in our church and a former coach had this saying and it was i may not ever reach a million people but i may reach the one who does and that's the way he lived you don't you don't know who you're going to reach you just need to reach whoever god puts in front of you and you you may be the one that reaches someone who does reach a million people Case in point, most of us in this room, particularly us that are around the age of 40 and older, have heard the name of C.H. Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon was, is called, even to this day, the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the 1800s. He pastored the first megachurch, and it was in Europe. He died before he was 40, or right about 40, and he is still considered one of the greatest pulpit preachers in the history of the church. He's written many, many, many sermons that are in books, book, and I mean books. And, I mean, and they, he wasn't the dynamic preacher at all, but he, he was faithful to the word, and he preached it. But his testimony is incredible because he was lost, and one day he was walking down the street in the wintertime, and he wanted to come into this church to get warm, and he come in, and he sat at the back, and he just so happened to come into a church where the pastor was sick and couldn't show up that day. So there was a group of men, the deacons got together, and they were asking themselves, who's going to preach? Preacher's not here. Who's going to preach? And none of them wanted to, which is 
pretty common because most deacons aren't called to preach. But one of them said, well, I don't really have much, but I, I've got this verse of Scripture. And he got up, and he, he quoted one verse of Scripture, and that was it. And it says, turn to me all the, world, all the earth and be saved. That's all he said. That was the sermon. Could you imagine walking in and a guy going, turn to me all the earth and be saved? And the preacher said, let's pray. That was the message. But that message hit Charles Hadley Spurgeon right in the heart. And he had never heard that before. And during that invitation, he walked down front, he talked to that guy, gave his life to Christ, and became one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. We don't have a harvest problem. We have a labor problem. Can you imagine the difference if none of those men had said, uh, I can't preach today. I'm not the preacher. He's not here. Let's just cancel service. Let's just sing some songs and go on about our day. I'm thankful they didn't. I'm thankful for the people in my life that didn't give up and didn't quit sharing the gospel with me if I ever rejected it. And so we, we've got to get to this point where we understand that we don't have a harvest problem, we have a laborer problem, and we need to be a part of the solution. And that leads us to the last thing, which is the solution. And to see this, this is in the last part of the Savior's vision, is he gives a prescription. He gives us a prescription. He gives us a solution to these issues. Look in verse 38. He says, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So, so Jesus says that we needed to pray, or that his disciples needed to pray to the Lord to send out workers into the field. That we need to pray for laborers. The, the point is, the, the, the solution is that we would have more laborers go into the field. Now, I, th I always thought it was interesting. You've got to remember when this was written. This is written before the remaining part of the scriptures that we have, in particular, but it's even written before Jesus had been crucified and rose from the grave. So Jesus, this, this prayer request that he tells his disciples to pray for is actually fulfilled after he is rose from the dead. Because what did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? He commissioned his church to go. So pray the Lord to send out workers into his field. Jesus dies on the cross for their sins. He's buried. He rose from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven to, to be with God forever, to sit at the right hand of God. And the last thing he tells us, his disciples, go ye therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples of the whole the world. So this has been fulfilled. You see, some of us would like to hide behind that. See, no, it just says to pray for hard laborers. It doesn't say I have to be one. No, 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 no. Jesus made you a laborer when you became a child of his. Because in Matthew 28, he told his church to go. So the prescription is the church. That's the prescription. So we have this perception. We see their need. And then we have this compassion that leads us to yearn for, to help them. We realize, well, there's, the problem is not on them. The problem's on us. We don't have enough workers. And the solution is for me to be a worker. It's really that simple. But the only way this will ever happen is if you and I begin to see people the way Jesus sees them. If we have the vision that Jesus has for them.